I've got a message for you today that I, the Lord has put on my heart that I have a lot of faith to preach to you. The title of the message today is I'm Lost. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know if you came to get excited today or like if you needed faith today, but the message is I'm lost. I don't know if you've ever felt lost. I don't know, parents, if you have ever felt lost, sometimes just as individuals, we feel lost. Like we don't know where to go, what to do, or which way is up. But um, it happens. All of us at one point or another feel lost in life. And I want to look at a familiar story, but I want to look at it in a new way. Kind of like when they remake Spider-Man every two years. It's a new story in a new way. So we're going to be in Luke 15, reading the parable of the prodigal son. If you would stand with me as we read the word of God. We're going to be in Luke 15, reading verses 11 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring upon his hand and shoes upon his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father God, let us hear your heart for us this day. Let us see you as Jesus speaks of you. Give us a revelation, Father, of your goodness and your grace towards us. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that would understand what the Spirit of the living God is saying to us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Say amen. You may be seated. One of my least favorite things in the world uh, is learning a new game, specifically a new card game. People always want to teach you new card games, and it's great. We love cards. I love games, the board games, card games. We play them all the time in our house. Growing up, we'd play games all the time. It was a big part of what we do, but you guys know what I'm talking about. When somebody wants to teach you a new card game, and they start describing things, and you don't know what they're talking about or how it works or what the goal is, and all the words in the world just don't give you any clarity at all as to what's going on. You know what I'm talking about? And they're trying to describe something that you have to see and participate in. And the more they're talking, it's just more and more like the lost you get. It just, I don't, I don't, can we just start? And then they deal the cards out. And then somebody starts saying stuff like, oh, we're playing Joker, Joker, Deuce. We're playing Sandbags, Two Bumps or One. I'm going like, I don't know about you. I didn't grow up on a New Orleans riverboat. So I don't understand that language. 
I am not a gambling man, so I don't know what any of that means. I just feel lost. You know what I'm talking about? Trying to learn a new game, but you don't know what you're supposed to do. You just feel lost. And then what do they always say once you, it's like just what? Just start playing. And you'll figure it out as we play. You're telling me you want me to play poorly and lose at a game you think is great. That's how you want to introduce me to a new game. I got an issue with people like this, man. But what's the, what's the reality? Once you start playing and once you start watching somebody who knows how to play the game, all of a sudden the game begins to make sense to you and you can start playing the game the right way. Here's what's going on in the context of our passage. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and gathering a crowd. And the Pharisees, they're mad about it. Because the Pharisees are playing the wrong game and they don't understand these rules that Jesus has brought to the table. They understand the church game to be well-respected and dignified men associate with well-respected and dignified men. Like follows like. But you've got Jesus out here teaching and the people that are following him are tax collectors and sinners. Only thing worse than a sinner is a tax collector. And he's amassing all these people who come and want to hear what he has to say, and it doesn't make any sense to them. In Luke 15, 2, it says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled about it. This man, he receives sinners and he eats with them. This is not how we play the game. You are not supposed to associate with the lowly and the destitute and the awkward and the hurting and the poor because they don't have anything to offer you. You're supposed to associate with the well-respected, the dignified, the wealthy, and the educated because they have a lot to offer you. And Jesus comes in and he flips the script on them all the way upside down and it violates everything they know about how to do church. He flips the game on their head. But Jesus understands that if you're going to learn how to play the game the right way, you've got to watch somebody play it for you. So Jesus shows them the new rules of the game. And he does this by telling them three quick stories, three parables. He tells the story of the lost sheep. He says, let me put it to you this way. Which of you, if you were a shepherd and you were out in the field watching your sheep and one of your sheep wandered off and went astray, how many of you would not stop what you were doing, leave those 99 sheep and go collect the one sheep? Sheep have value. Sheep have worth. They're important to you. They're a part of your livelihood and your well-being. And sheep wander. It's what they do. A shepherd's job is to go and collect the sheep. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me put it like this then. Imagine there's a woman. And she has 10 silver coins, likely a part of a wedding gift that was given to her, something of immense and amazing value, precious to her. 10 silver coins and she loses one in her household. Now, how many of you just go, well, it's just a coin, we're just going to leave it? None of you do that. All of you turn the house upside down, inside out to try to find that which is precious and valuable. Jesus is saying, do you understand that if even one of you were to get lost, your heavenly father would turn the world upside down to get to you? Do you understand the game that Jesus comes for those who are far off from him? He goes, I have to put it a third way. Imagine there's a lost son. So we got a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Hopefully you are not lost at this point in the message. Hopefully you are tracking with me. We are together. We're good? Okay, let's keep going. The Pharisees could not understand why Jesus was associating with the lowly and the lost people. But Jesus was teaching them the rule of the game, which is that it is the condition of everyone and everything to be lost at one point or another. And that which is lost needs to be found. This is the first thing we've got to wrestle with and grasp this with this Sunday morning is that all of us are lost. And our lostness is a condition. It's not a behavior. So parents understand this. 
See, well, sometimes parents misunderstand this, actually, as I start to think about it. Parents, you think your child is acting the way they're acting to annoy you. You think your child behaves poorly because they got a personal grudge against you and they're trying to get back at you. Parents, we think that if we could just control the actions of our children, we would be all right. But how many of you know that's all wrong? Because your child is lost and their lostness is not a behavior that they do. It is a condition that they have. See, the son in the story, he wanted to leave his father and he wanted to leave his family. And it wasn't to go get an education. It wasn't to go get a name for himself. It wasn't to go start up a small business and try to make it on his own. The son left his father because he wanted to party. It says he squandered what he had on reckless living. That's what he wanted to do. That's why he wanted to go. You ever make a bad choice on purpose? You're like, I know it's not healthy, but I'm going to eat it anyways. I know I shouldn't watch it, but I'm going to turn it on anyways. I know it's not helpful, but I'm going to say it anyways. Why do we do that? We make bad decisions that have a bad outcome, and we do it on purpose. Do you know what that is? That's our lostness. That's the condition of all of our hearts, which is that we are far from God, and we don't know which way to go or what to do. It's a condition that we all share. The Bible says it like this in Proverbs 22:15. The Bible says, "Folly is bound up in the heart of a child." So if we know one thing that all of our children all share in common from the moment of birth is that they all carry the same thing in their heart. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. If you want to know why your kids don't brush their teeth, why they don't want to go to bed on time, why they don't want to do their homework, if you if I want to know why my kids think it's a good idea to sword fight with shovels in the backyard, It's because my children share the same condition all of your children share. They're fools. (laughs) And I can say that because you're a child too. And I'm a child as well. And what's bound up in all of our hearts is the same foolish condition, the same lostness, the same, well, I'm far from God and I don't know how to make good choices and good decisions for myself. And this foolishness that is bound up in our hearts from birth, it has us believing all kinds of lies that just aren't true. And one of the greatest lies that this foolishness has us believing is the lie of self-sufficiency, that I can do it all by myself that I know what's best for me, that I am the best leader over my own life. And if you would just leave me alone, I could figure it out by myself. But Tyler Perry, the great prophet, one time said, (laughs) the only thing you can do bad by yourself is you can do bad all by yourself. That's all we can do, left to our own devices, left on our own, left to making choices that satisfy what we want, only ends up in destructive places. The only thing we can do on our own with excellence is wrong. It's true of us, and why do we think it's not true of our children as well? One of the most liberating truths that I've come to realize as a parent is that my children are just as lost as I am and as I was, and they need to be found. When you understand this, especially as parents, but this applies to everybody who has a relationship in their life. When you realize that the people in your life are lost, it changes every interaction that you have with them. When we stop looking at our kids as rebellious individuals seeking to make our lives harder, and we start looking at them as lost individuals trying to find their way, 
It changes how we interact and teach them and parent them. And once we understand that the condition is all wrong, we can start fixing the remedy. Too many parents treat symptoms and not root causes. Doctors, don't, they, doctors will treat the symptom, but that's not their preference. They want to get down to what the root cause is. And I'm saying if you want behavior modification, there's a lot of ways that you can get behavior modification. There's a lot of things that you can do that will stop your children from acting one way and get them acting another way. You can use all kinds of words, threats, insults, and all kinds of physical touch and all of that. And you can get them to behave a certain way. But at some point in their life, they will grow tired of being treated that way. And they will no longer listen when you speak. So you can, be, you can modify behavior. But behavior modification will not save your child. And behavior modification will not do what every parent in here needs to know that their job is. Behavior modification will not produce in your child a need and a desire for Jesus. It'll just teach them to be afraid of you. Lost people don't need correction as much as they need direction. A lost person doesn't need to be told that they're lost. They know. They don't need to be told what got them lost. They know. And they don't need to be made a fool for feeling like they're lost. They already feel it. A lost person needs to be found. A lost person needs direction. They need to be shown a way out. Because when you're lost, you got lost because you didn't know which way to go. And so what they need is somebody to guide them and show them a way out. It's a whole other way to look at it. And what the Bible says as one of our tools to help guide the foolishness that's in our hearts is this. Well, let's, let's just finish the verse. Let's look at Proverbs twenty two fifteen again. Let's finish it. It says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And all the old school parents leaned in. <laughs> talk about it. Let's talk about it for a second. The literal rod of discipline was literally used on my literal behind, okay? So you know how I grew up. That's, that's how it happened for me. I grew up with the rod. I'm not against the rod, but I am against the way many parents use the rod because you're not using it the way that Christ is teaching us to use it. Here's what I mean by this. You need to ask yourself, what is my rod producing in my child? What is it producing? Because Psalm 23, when it speaks as a lost sheep and to Jesus, a good shepherd, it says, your rod and your staff, they what? They comfort me. Does your rod comfort or does it scare? Because a shepherd might need to guide his sheep where to go. And it might need a little, you know, a little knock on the knee to get back in shape or whatever. But a shepherd never hits a sheep to hurt it. The rod and the staff of your shepherd comforts you. It leads you into safety, into security, into peace, that you could walk in green pastures and beside still waters, that you could rest in his presence because you know that you are safe. So the rod and the staff are good. But what do the rod and the staff produce? The rod and the staff are to guide a lost sheep to where they ought to go. Your rod, your staff, doesn't have to be a literal rod every time, by the way. Can I just say, it wasn't only a literal rod used on me. There were a lot of other things my parents did to teach me to love Jesus. And what they were doing is using these things to guide a lost soul in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
this is what we ought to be doing as parents in our households or as mentors of young people. What is your rod producing? Because the lost person doesn't need correction so much as they need direction. Now, behavior needs correction, but I'm not speaking about behavior today. I'm speaking about condition. Behavior needs correction. Condition needs direction. And lost people, they need direction from somebody who understands what it means to be lost. Children need parents who are not irritated by their lostness, but compassionate towards it. And that compassion comes from remembering that you have been lost too. No parent gives grace more joyfully and more freely than one who actively recognizes their daily need for it. When you know how much you are dependent on God to make a good choice for today, listen, we are way more like our children than unlike them. Can I say that? You are so much more like your child than a young person than you think. We think we mature and grow up and all of a sudden now we start making good decisions. Look at the last 10 decisions you made. Half of them I bet you regret. Let's just be honest, okay? Then we look at children and go, y'all can't make any good decisions. Half your decisions are bad. We're just like them. That's not to make you feel, that's just a, that's not to make you feel bad. That's just to level the playing field. We think very highly of ourselves sometimes. We need to live in a place where we recognize our daily need for grace from Jesus just to get through the day and lead in love out of that place in our hearts. You know, they say parents just don't understand. It's because we, we think we've achieved some level of whatever, that we forget what it was like to be a child. Our children need parents who do understand, who daily confront their own need, their own foolishness within themselves. You don't just grow out of your foolishness because you get older. You get delivered from your foolishness by God. When you remember what it's like to be lost, then you can begin to provide direction to your child that shows them a way out. And I want to say this. This goes both ways. Because if you have a father who wasn't there for you or wasn't a good example of any of this or didn't do any of this for you or just wasn't for you what you needed them to be for you, I need you to remember that they are lost as well. And it's rarely a set of willful decisions intended to do you harm. It is more often a condition that is far from God, that is lost and is foolish. Now, We expect our fathers to be held to a higher standard, and I get that. But perhaps our eyes aren't looking high enough when we look at them. Because you have in your heavenly father, one who calls himself not just Yahweh, not just Elohim, not just Almighty One, not just the Holy One of Israel. You have one in God who calls himself Abba, which means father, which means daddy, which means the one I call to when I'm hurting, the one who hears me when I'm in pain, the one who gives me direction when I'm lost. You have in your heavenly father, one who is always there when you need him, always has the right word to say, always treats you with the love that you need from him. And we fix our eyes on earthly fathers and miss our heavenly father. And we allow the pain of an earthly father to be transposed on our heavenly father when it ought to be the glory of our heavenly father that we bring down into the earth and put on our families as fathers. In God, you have the good father. You have the one who knows your every need. He knows your condition and he does not leave you in your condition. He comes and finds you and brings you home to him because he knows that you're lost and that you need to be found. And as a good father, he leaves what he has 
to come and to get you. Second thing I want to talk about is the grace of good authority. There comes a time in every child's life where they stop being taught and they start testing the teaching. We recognize these years, these painful, dreadful, terrifying years, as the preteen or teenage years. It is that period of time when your sweet, fun-loving child gets possessed by a rebellious devil <laughs> who seems to overtake their soul, their heart, and their mind. <laughs> and all chaos can break loose in these years. And I just want to tell you, don't be afraid of that. Don't be concerned. Your child is not broken. They're lost. They're not broken. They're just how we are when sin breaks us. But what they are doing is they're taking everything that you've taught them for the early years of their life, and now they're beginning to test and see whether what you taught them holds up in their world. They want to see if what mom and dad had to say is true or not. And so the only way to do that is to test it. Now, this is not exclusive to children, lest we forget to look at ourselves for a moment. Do not all of us do the same thing? When we hear a fact, hear a teaching, hear a truth, we need to test it and see if we believe it as well or not. This is a thing that drove the son away from his family. He wanted to test the belief that he was a better authority over his life than his father was. He thought he knew better. And it's the lie that we all believe, that I should have full autonomous authority over my life because nobody knows me better than me and nobody knows what I need better than I know what I need. And if I'm going to make a mistake, you just let me make it because I can handle it. We all think we're the best leaders of our lives. This is what sin does. Sin puts us at the center of our world and it has us thinking that we're the authority. All of us are addicted to the idea of self-rule. And two things need to happen to break us from this addiction. The first is that our rule needs to fail. Like, you only lose trust in something when that thing stops working for you, right? So why we say if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So at some point for us to lose faith in ourselves, the decisions that we make, the actions that we take have to lead us somewhere where we go, that's not the result I was looking for and that's not the result that I intended to get. I'm now going to begin questioning my own authority over my life. And the good news is, is that has a 100% success rate for every human in all of human history. All of us are unable to make the best decisions for our lives because we make them selfishly and independently. So the good news is, is that at some point, all of us, including our children, reach this point. But what happens when they reach this point is the second thing needs to kick in here. And the second thing that needs to happen is that, that they need to be, have been exposed to a more trustworthy authority. When your rule fails, what do you turn back to? What was layered into you over many years of your childhood? What do you know to be true about the world? This is what I believe the Bible is talking about when it says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. What has been layered in day after day after day that is a representation of good, godly authority? See, the son reached the end of himself trying to eat pig's food out of a pig's trough and couldn't even get that. And he thinks to himself, well, what I know about my father is that at least I know my father treats his hired hands well. And if he could treat me 
half as well as he treats a hired hand, that's better than what I'm at right now. There's a grace that good authority allows you in your life. And perhaps it is our greatest calling not to enforce our own rule and reign, but to image and to mirror God's rule and reign in our households and in our families. There has to be something for that child to turn back to once they get to the end of themselves. What is the testimony that you are writing day by day as you raise your children, as you treat your spouse, as you live in your family? What is there for them to turn back to when the moment finally comes? I just want to say it like this. Oftentimes, we can feel like all of those bad decisions, all of the disobedience, all the knucklehead behavior, all the wandering far from God, all the talking back, all the noise is just a supreme inconvenience. And if we could just stop with all that, we could finally get back to our lives. But let me encourage you, instead of seeing the daily disobedience as bad behaviors that are inconvenient to you, perhaps begin to see them as grace gifts from God to you. Because your heavenly father is giving you hundreds of opportunities every day to point your child back to the love of Jesus. A hundred chances a day to preach the gospel to your child. A hundred chances a day to teach them about what forgiveness and grace and mercy look like in their lives. Perhaps the greatest responsibility we have as parents is to show our children what it looks like to be led by God. And I want you every day to just layer in and layer in and layer in over and over and over and over and over again. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what forgiveness looks like, what mercy looks like. Every day you keep pointing them back to him. Here's your goal as a parent. I want you to be predictable. I want you to be boring. I want you to be constant and stable. I want your kids to know what you're going to say before you say it. I don't want you to be sporadic and inconsistent. Like, I don't know which version of dad I'm getting today, but we're going to find out here in a minute. I want you to be consistent because inconsistent parenting produces insecurity in your children. Specifically insecurity in authority. Because you have been placed there to image and represent what good authority looks like in their life. We're all under authority. So it's a lie to think we don't have to submit to authority. All of us do in every facet of our lives. That's a given. But what we can do instead of teaching our children there is no authority is to show them what a good authority is. And so I'm not asking you to be perfect. But I am asking you to be consistent. I'm asking you to be like the sun. I don't want you to be like the moon. The moon shows up different every day of the week. Look a little bit different, a little bit changed. Sometimes it's not there at all. I want you to be like the sun. I want you to rise every day and set every night. I want you to be on time every time and extra long in the summertime. I want you to be there when we wake up and be there when I go to sleep. And when it's cloudy and rainy, I want you to still be there. I want you to be like a garbage man. I want you to show up and do your job when nobody asks you to do it. I want you to do the dirty work. I want you to do the thankless things. I want you to do what they ask you to do when they ask you to do it. Because if you didn't do it, it would all fall apart. I want you to be stable like a table. I want you to hold things up. I want you to provide a place people can gather around. I want you to be there for every meal. I want you to be a thing that is in the house on purpose every day. I want you to be boring, consistent, and predictable. 
Because if your children don't know what they get when they get you, they will look for something that makes more sense to them than you. But if you show up every day for them like God shows up for you every day of your life, compassionate, loving, merciful, and gracious, ready to embrace and to love, they will learn what it looks like to be under the good authority of God and in their souls will be produced a need and a desire and a longing to experience that love every day of their life. Now I'm not asking you to be perfect because you cannot be and you will not be. Some of y'all messed up on the way here. Promise yourself in worship, I'm gonna get it right. And you're gonna mess up in the car on the way out of here. The perfection is not the goal. But I do want you to be consistent. And I want you to be consistently enamored with God's rule. Hear what I'm saying to you. You don't have to have every right answer every single time, every day. You can't, I'm not asking you to show up and show no weakness, no flaws, no misunderstanding. I'm asking you to live as a son of God who is in love with his father. I want you to teach your children what grace looks like. I want you to show them what mercy feels like. I want them to see what steadfast love feels like. I want them to know that you love justice and mercy and that you walk in humility. I want them to know that when I mess up and say something, I shouldn't say, I ask God for forgiveness and I ask you for forgiveness. So when you mess up and say something you shouldn't have said, you need to ask God for forgiveness and you need to ask me for forgiveness. I want you to know that when I feel afraid and don't know what to do, I pray and ask God for help. So when you feel afraid and you don't know what to do, you pray and ask God for help. I want you to model what it looks like to be one who loves God so much their life is submitted to him. Because if you try to be perfect, Children are lie detectors. They see you more than anybody else. You can fool me, but you can't fool your children. You cannot fool your spouse. Don't even try. It's a losing game. But what you can do is authentically admit where you are before God, invite his grace, and walk in the authority that he's given you. This is the grace of good authority over your life that you build it into your household. Then your children have something to return to when they're older. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, train up your child in the way he should go, but be sure you go that way yourself. Lastly, I want to talk about the response of a father. I mean, one of the greatest priorities, and I want you to feel this, especially as parents, but really, just as individuals, one of our greatest priorities ought to be preserving the relationships in our life. As parents, Maybe a good goal for you is to create a home that your children love to return to, to create an atmosphere in your household that your kids want to be in. One of the greatest gifts I have in my family, I'm the youngest of four boys. We're all grown, we're all married, we all have kids, we're all over the United States. But one of the greatest gifts I have in my family is that we're all friends together today. We like doing stuff together. We just planned a family vacation this last weekend together for next year. Like We enjoy that. And that doesn't happen naturally. That takes intentionality and that takes effort. And it was the prioritization of my parents to create something in us more than just boys who followed rules, but young men who loved to come home and were relationally restored with one another. So even when there was issue between us, we found out the ways to resolve those issues and to get back relationally set. It takes intentionality to build a family that wants to be together. And yet it's one of the most important things we can do in our lives is to build relational unity within our households. 
It takes extreme intentionality, especially when sin is involved. And there will be sin involved. Shouldn't shock you, mom and dad, husband, wife, brother. It should not shock you when the person in your family sins against you. That's not new to us. How we respond is new to us. The father in the story could have responded so many different ways. Ways that we would feel justified and right. He could have disowned the son, rejected him, and turned him away. You took a third of my money, you trying to come back and get more? Man, get out of here. We could have responded all. He could have belittled him and ridiculed him and made fun of him. He could have made him work as a servant or earn his way back. And every single one of those responses would have prioritized the feelings of the father over the needs of the son. And that is not a privilege we get. It is always our feelings that stand in the way of reconciliation. Is it not? I'm hurt, I'm mad, I'm upset, I'm this, that, and the third. And until you make me feel good, we're not going to be good. But did Jesus on his cross go, y'all been mean, being mean to me. Y'all made me feel bad. Peter, you done betrayed me. I'm not getting up there for you. No. That man went to God in the garden and he said, God, I don't want to do this because it hurts too bad. Give me any other way. But if that's what you want me to do, God, I'll do it. So mom and dad, go get in your prayer closet. God, I'm going to smack this child left, right, and center, throw him down the stairs, take their car, break their phone. But if you want me to forgive them, I'll do it. (sighs) Son and daughter, come here. Dad loves you, I'm with you, I got you, I have mercy and grace over you. You're not allowed to not feel those feelings, it's just what do you do with those feelings? Jesus felt them, but he submitted them to the lordship of his father so he could respond the way that built up something in the disciples. Even as he's praying, Peter and them are falling asleep. If I'm Jesus, I'm going, you, I mean, are you joking? <sighs> Can you guys not stay awake for an hour? Come on, let's wake up. Let's go back to prayer. He responded in a way that preserved the relationship, did not scare off his disciples. I'm okay. Let me say this. Let me say this. The Christian model for reconciliation is that instead of sitting in our feelings, we must stay ready for redemption. We come into situations expecting reconciliation, looking to forgive, and anticipating the relationship being repaired. Our response is our responsibility. The father was hopeful, expectant, prayerful, and patient that the son would return because he knew that the joy of redemption is always greater than the pain of departure. And although it hurt when the son essentially says, dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my money so I can go do what I want with it? Can you imagine how much that hurt the father to hear? A father who had given his whole life for these boys, done everything he could to raise them right. And when they're young adults, they say, Dad, I'm out of here. I don't want nothing to do with it. That is a wound that runs deep. But the father did not sit in his feelings. He looked for the moment of redemption and repair. He was ready to forgive, ready to receive, ready to embrace, ready to reconcile. Because we were made to be together, not apart. And there is a joy that comes in the redemption that is greater than the pain of the departure. Let me say it like this. Jesus finishes all three of these stories with the same thought. He talks about the lost sheep. 
And he says, if you lost a sheep, would you not go and get the sheep? Sheep wander. That's what sheep do. Because listen, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me tell it to you like this, like the lady with the coin. If she finds that coin, I just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I need you to catch something on this verse. I'll read it in the NIV. There is rejoicing in the presence of angels even when one returns to God. See, we've got this all wrong. We say, let's, let's rejoice with the angels in heaven. Let's celebrate with the angels. Let's dance with the elders. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says there is joy in the presence of angels. Whose presence do the angels stand in? Whose feet do the elders cast their crowns down before? In the throne room of God where the cherubim and the seraphim and all the other fims are up there with all the elders. When one repents, it says there is joy and rejoicing before them. That means God is the one who's having a praise break party up in heaven, who's dancing on his throne, who's celebrating when even one son or one daughter returns. You don't know how happy you make your heavenly father when you turn back home and come back to him. Listen, the son had a whole voice track. Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I've forsaken you and the family. And if you would just have me back. And he didn't even get halfway through before the father cut him off. Shut up. Listen, get me a robe. Get me a ring. Get me a calf. We're having a party. Don't say anything else. Just come on in. He doesn't want to hear the excuse. He doesn't want to hear what you had to say. He just wants you home with him. So when you're lost, Know that you've got a father who wants to find you. And there's no day like today to come home and to receive the joy of your master's house. There's no moment like this moment to say, God, I'm far from you, but now I want to be close to you. I know I did you wrong. I know I took every blessing you gave me and I squandered it. I lived recklessly. I lived like a fool. But God, if you would, for, you know, he would say, shh, 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 I got you. Come on in. Let me get a ring and a robe and, 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 ooh, and some food. Woo! Going too fast for myself. <laughs> Let me just say like this. God stands ready to receive you. Ready to welcome you home. Ready to embrace you and bring you back into his household. Because there is a joy in heaven that breaks out when even one lost sheep returns back to their shepherd. When even one lost son comes back home to their father. Nothing makes the father's heart happier than even one of us returning to him. Let's pray.